Well, guys, if we haven't met yet, my name's Hans. I'm one of the pastors here. It is great to see you guys here. Unfortunately, I didn't print out enough handouts. So if you've got one, you're one of the lucky ones. I'm sorry about that. I will, I will endeavor to print out more next time. Uh, but how about we pray as we look at these two great chapters of the Bible? Let's pray. Father God, I am fully aware that without your spirit working now, this next uh, few minutes is just a, uh, another talk. But Lord, we don't want, need another talk. We need you to speak to us. And so Lord, I pray that, uh, that wherever we're at with you, you would speak to us through your word. Tell us the things that we need to hear and give us the hearts and minds that we should accept those things and not reject them or not ignore them. Lord, may all of us forget about me and forget about what I'm going to say, but be blown away by what you say through your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isn't waiting good? I mean, don't you love a good wait? I mean, don't you love driving behind an acceleratorly challenged driver who's going 35 k's in a 60 zone and you're in a hurry and you're just, don't you just think, thank you, God, that you're teaching me patience? Or don't you love going into a doctor's uh, waiting room and it's just packed? And you think, oh, great, they're running late. I'm going to have to wait here for an hour. And I, I get to catch up on all my new idea reading from the last 10 years. Don't you love a good wait? Or don't you love what happened to me the other day, coming out of the Macquarie Centre? And, you know, it's, it's packed. Everyone's trying to get out. And there's someone just a few cars ahead that has to pay at the boom gate. And it takes them 15 minutes to figure out how to pay. Don't you love being in that situation? You're waiting and you can just admire all the great concrete and everything. It's, waiting's great, isn't it? No, it's not. I mean, we hate waiting. I, I mean, look, there's trivial waiting, isn't there? Tri- those things are trivial, right? But then there's the waiting of a single person waiting for a husband or a wife. There's the waiting of someone or a couple who are waiting to conceive. And then there's the waiting on God where we've asked God to change our situation in some way. And yet we're praying and praying and we are waiting. I've got a friend who I visited last Sunday night. His four-year-old daughter is in hospital She's got got leukaemia, and as they were treating the leukaemia, she picked up influenza and pneumonia. And the problem is, if they treat the leukaemia, that destroys the white blood cells, and then the pneumonia flares up. And if they stop treating the leukaemia so they can deal with the pneumonia and influenza, the leukaemia flares up. And they are praying and waiting on God. Their six-year-old daughter came to, came to them 
and said, Mommy, I don't know what to pray. Should I pray that my, my sister gets better so she can be with us? Or should I pray that God takes her home? And the parents said, we don't know what to pray. We're just waiting. Waiting on God to either heal her or take her home. Waiting on God is really hard, isn't it? Because usually we're waiting on God to take us out of a situation that's really hard and maybe even give us a situation that's far better. And I dare say that that some of us here are waiting on God. We are praying, or we have been praying. And yet it seems like God is taking his time. And maybe you're here and you're going, man, life is going really well for me. I feel like God is just answering my prayers all the time. There will be a time in your life where God will seem like he is taking his time. He's going 35 k's in a 60 zone when you want him to go 100. And I bring this waiting on God up because the Israelites, as we're going to see, are waiting on God to act. In fact, they've been waiting 400 years to act. And in chapter 4, what we see is that Moses got a word from God that he is going to rescue his people. And at the end of chapter 4, we see that Moses goes to the Israelite leaders and they're worshipping God because they believe that God is going to save them. And yet, as we're going to see in chapters 5 and 6, it doesn't go on their timetable. They still have to wait. And the question is, when we're waiting on God, and the question I'm sure that the Israelites were asking is, is God a God who actually keeps his promises? Is he going to come through? And so as we look at this passage, we're going to see three things. We're actually going to have three meetings. We're going to have a meeting with Pharaoh, a meeting with God, and a meeting with Moses. A meeting with Pharaoh, a meeting with God, and a meeting with Moses. Let's have a look at the first point, a meeting with Pharaoh. Have a look at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 5 with me. It says this, Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me Excuse me, in the wilderness. Notice here, this is a very, very blunt opening. If you compare it to kind of texts around this time, this almost is, is a, a hostile opening here. Let my people go. It's not conciliatory at any point. If you, if you uh, go back to chapter 3, verse 18, God tells Moses what to say to Pharaoh, and it's a little bit different. Moses goes in with bravado instead of humility. And what does Pharaoh say? Verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh matches the arrogance here. He is an arrogant king who, back in his time, everyone thought he was a god. So he is not going to bow down to, the, to, to what another god says, especially one he's never heard of. And so Moses says, or Moses and Aaron say, verse 3, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifice to the Lord our God, or he may strike us. And so how does the king of Egypt respond? 
In verses 4 to 9, he says, guess what? You're not going to, uh, to the Israelites, you're not going to have straw. You're going to have to gather your own straw for the bricks that you're making in slavery. But the quota is not going to be diminished. Even harder, harder work. In this section, the Israelites are called lazy three times. And Pharaoh has got all the astuteness of a political oppressor. He's experienced. Anytime throughout history, if an oppressor wants to keep a, a, a group of people down, he does two things. He calls them lazy and makes them work even, even harder. And that is actually what Pharaoh is doing. Why does he want them to work harder? As we're going to see. So they won't be able to listen to what God is saying. But also, the logic is, if they work harder and they're exhausted, they can't band together to actually come against Pharaoh. Now, one of the things that I was asked last week at both services is that the Exodus is a great story. It's a phenomenal story where thousands and thousands of people from Israel, sorry, who are part of the nation of Israel, come out of Egypt. And so some of us have asked the question, did this really happen? Do these things really happen? Now, what I'm going to do each time I preach is just give you a little bit of of why I think this happened. Let me tell you why I think what, what we've got here is rooted in historical reality. There's a photo coming up. If you go to ancient Egypt, you can go to a tomb, uh, the tomb of Rachmire. And he was an official. And what you've got here is uh, people from Canaan. You can, uh, uh, Egyptologists will say these guys are from Canaan based on their skin color, their hair, and also what they're wearing. And what are they doing? They are making bricks here, right? This is around the same time. This is painted around the same time as the Exodus. And in fact, there's an inscription above one of these paintings that says this, the rod is not, uh, sorry, the rod is in my hand, be not lazy. Does that sound familiar? See, what we're dealing with here, any historian will say that there were people from Canaan in Egypt around this time, they were slaves, they were making bricks. What we've got here is historical reality. Thanks, Ben, you can take that down. But, but what we're really interested in is the theological reality around this. And what you've got to realize is that the writer of, of the book of Exodus has really set up God versus Pharaoh at this point. Have a look at verse 1 with me again. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said. Have a look at verse 10 with me. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says. Both are very ancient ways of introducing a king. This is what the Lord says. This is what Pharaoh says. Have a look also at verse 3. At the end of verse 3, Moses is scared. He is saying, if we don't go out into the wilderness for three days, what, what can happen? Well, the Lord our God may strike us with plagues or with the sword. Have a look at verse 21. At the end of verse 21, Pharaoh and his officials have put a sword in their hand to kill us. 
So what, what you've got is that they're both kings and they're both scary. It is God versus Pharaoh here. And the question is, who is going to be the king? Who is the king that the Israelites are going to follow? Who is the king that they're going to obey? But there's actually a deeper reality. Have a look what Pharaoh says about what Moses and Aaron have said in verse 9. Make the work harder for the people so that they, may, they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Here is Pharaoh saying what Moses and Aaron have said are lies. But where did Moses and Aaron get what they were to say? From God. So here is Pharaoh saying, this opposing king, this God of the Bible, he's a liar. And all throughout the Bible, the enemies of God called God's word lies. Think about back into the garden. Satan goes to Adam and Eve and says, did God really say? Did God really say, oh, no, 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 you won't die if you eat this fruit? God is lying. And the question is, the question is, who are you going to listen to? Because all the way through the Bible, and even in our world, we've got to ask this question. Are we going to believe God's word, or are we actually going to think it is lies? What are we going to listen to? Now, what I'm going to get you to do right now, I need a bit of crowd participation, because I'm going to play the most beautiful sound I heard as a kid... And I want you to see if you can remember it. It's going to come up right now. Okay, uh, who wants to tell me where it's from? Mr. Whippy, right? Remember, like if you guys don't know what this sound is, basically there was, uh, there was a van came around and there was ice cream and, and any time you heard that, in Moree, I don't know if this happened where you grew up, all the kids just lost their mind, right? The, you'd be playing marbles, Mr. Whippy, you'd be freaking out. And, you know, the funny thing is, Mr. Whippy always seemed to come when your parents had just asked you to do something. You know, always seemed to, seemed to happen, you know, go and take out the rubbish or clean your room. And, and here's the thing, you'd only hear Mr. Whippy you wouldn't hear what your parents were saying. In fact, you did not want to hear what your parents would say because you wanted to actually listen to Mr. Whippy and obey him. You had a choice of who you were going to listen to. And here in this passage, in fact, the whole Bible gives you that same choice. Who are you going to listen to? When God says in his word how, how to live, are you going to live that way or are you going to hear the voices that say God's word is just wrong? It's, it's lies. Are God, the question is, are God's words lies to keep you from living your life to the full? Or does God's word and obeying it give you life to the full? See, when God says, here's how I want you to use your body 
your time, your money, your energy. Here's, here's how I want you to run your life. The question you've got to ask yourself is this. Is that for my good? Or are they lies trying to keep me away from the good life? But, but the Bible, I think, gives proof, irrefutable proof, that God's word is there for our benefit. Because if you trace the way God speaks to us, he gives us promises all the way through. He says, I'm going to save you, and he did in Jesus. I'm going to give you a hope and a future, and he has in Jesus in his death and resurrection. You you see, God's word in its predictive sense always has come true. And therefore, because God's word has come true for you, You can trust him, even when it's hard, even when everything in your body or your mind or your world is saying, actually, God's word is not true. See, the pharaohs of 3,000 years ago, the pharaohs of today will say, God's word's full of lies, and yet God has proven his word is trustworthy and true. And so... Who are you going to listen to today? That's a meeting with Pharaoh, but let's have a meeting with God. As you can imagine, the the Israelite leaders are really uh, just angry with Moses. They're angry with Moses because he hasn't, uh, you know, God hasn't acted. Moses hasn't acted in a way they wanted. They thought, you, you know, they'd be out of slavery very, very quickly. And you see that, verse 19 of chapter 5, the Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron on waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. They They are so angry with Moses and Aaron. And so what does Moses do? Moses doesn't respond to them, but he meets with God. Have a look at verse 22 with me. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord? Isn't that the question we're all asking when we go through suffering? Why, Lord? But, but he goes on. Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Uh, Literally in the the original, he's saying, God, why have you brought evil on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people. And you have not rescued your people at all. Here, Here, Moses is saying, guess what? I thought you'd... I thought you were going to say, you told me you were going to say, and you haven't even done it. Here is Moses. He's disappointed with God's timing. He thought as soon as he goes back to Egypt, he tells everyone, goes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's going to let him go. It's all going to be good. But that's not what God promised. And in fact, here we see something that afflicts me too. When I pray to God and I want God to change my situation, I want it done really fast, don't you? 
One prayer should be enough for the God of the universe. God, why have you not done what I've asked you to do? And yet when we're in that mindset, what we've got to realize is it's not us bowing our knee to God. We want God to bow his knee to us. We want him to be on our timeline, not us to be on his. And notice how God responds. Verse, verse 1 of chapter 6, then, Moses, then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. God is, God is saying, I'm still going to do this. I have not forgotten my promise. And in fact, in verses 2 to 5, God is the one who, who says, Hey, I've done this in the past. I've, I've given these promises. And in the, these, uh, this section... He says, I six times. It's all, I have done this. I have promised. I have done this. And then in, the, in this next section, verses 6 to 8, have a read of it with me. And notice how many times God says he will do something. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm or with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you from out under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Did you notice that? I'll do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. What Israel? Do, what, what, what is Israel doing? Pretty much nothing. In fact, nothing at all. They're kind of bystanders. And it is God who actually, by his grace, saves them. They do nothing. The only thing that they actually do positively in this section is they know. They come to a point where, oh, yeah, God God is powerful. God did do what he said he will do. This, they are saved by his grace alone. God will free them, redeem them, take them to be his own, bring them to the land he promised, give them this land all by grace alone. And when you look at your life, God's grace is there in your life too. Because think about who who woke you up to the fact that you needed God. Not you, it was God. Who was the one 2,000 years ago who died for you? It wasn't you. It was God. Who was the one that that was raised from the dead for you? It wasn't you. It was God. God has done everything for you to be saved. From the first page of the Bible to the last, God is a God of amazing grace. And we, what do we do? We get to know him. We get to marvel at his amazing grace. Grace. But yet, have a look at how the Israelites respond. Verse six of chapter sorry, verse nine of chapter six. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. 
literally in the original, it says the shortness of spirit, which is an ancient Near Eastern way of saying depression. They are looking around at their harsh labor and they are depressed. And, and, and can I just say, I get it. I mean, no one will be like if we were there. We're not chucking a party. We would be depressed too. And yet, they are not encouraged by God's words through Moses here. Why? Because the discouragement in their hearts won't let them hear God's word. They are so focused on this situation. They wanted a quick and easy salvation. They expected that. And the problem with the Israelites and the problem with Moses is they looked at the situation far more than their saviour. Their situation is bleak. But their saviour, God, is giving them hope. Their, their situation is about work and work and work. But their saviour is going to save them and he's going to do all the work, not them. Their situation is hardship. And yet the saviour is going to take them to a land flowing with milk and honey. See, their problem is they looked to their situation and not their saviour. And I think one of the things that when we're in really hard situations, don't we do the same? Aren't we discouraged because we're, we're so looking at our situation and not our saviour who has saved us? Oh yeah, you may be going through a hard time, and I've gone through really hard times. We will go through a hard time. But actually, Jesus has promised to one day wipe away every tear from our eyes. And so why do we look at our situation more than our saviour? If you're going through a hard, a hard time to you, uh, I'm sorry, if you're going to, through a hard time right now, what is more real to you right now? Your situation or the love of your saviour? I, I want to tell you about one of my favourite human beings on the, on the face of planet Earth, a guy named Tor Lu. I'm not sure if you know Tor. Tor is... As I said, one of my favourite human beings. Tor and I went to college together. And uh, I, I used to joke with Tor. I went up to him once and I said, Tor, uh, he's like about that tall. And I said, Tor, um, I, I find being around you is, is detrimental to my faith. And he said, oh, brother, why? And I said, uh, yeah, because, because the Bible says um, a bunch of things. And, and I think your life is living in contradiction to the Bible. He goes, Why? really upset and I said oh brother um, because the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and I've never seen you sin right and and it's why I can punch in the face right now but anyway that was a kind of joke between friends that was a lot funnier when we did it not funny right now obviously but but the thing but but Tor has always been a, a very joyous very encouraging dude was someone who 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 you would just want to be around a few years ago he had an infection that spread to his brain. And now he, is, he uh, speaks very slowly, very laboured, about a word a second. He, he's now, you know, he's got his own walker and he, can walk, he walks very, very, very slowly. I visited him a couple of, uh, a couple of months ago. 
And I, I said, hey, mate, look, are you, are you angry with God? I, I, I mean, you had a great ministry and a great life and this has happened. He goes, how can I be angry with God for what all he's done for me? I mean, he saved me. He's going to give me a new body one day. I'm looking forward to running and leaping and being able to talk again properly. How can, how can, I, be, how can I be angry with him? Because I deserve so much worse than what I've got now. How can Tor, in the midst of that hardship, be so full of joy? Because he's focusing on his saviour, not his situation. He's focusing on his saviour, not his situation. And once again, I wonder when you are going through hard times, what are you focusing on? Is it your saviour who is giving you hope or your situation? Now, how do you, how do you focus on your, your saviour? Here's, here's one of the things that you do. When you're going through a hard time, you don't stop doing the Christian things. You don't stop reading your Bible and praying. You don't stop going to growth group. You don't stop going to hang out with your grubbing coffee or or dinner or lunch with other Christians who are going to remind you of your Savior. You You don't stop coming to church. Even though it is really hard sometimes to come to church and to share about how you're going, you need to be reminded of your Savior over and over and over again. So that the picture, your mind's image of your Savior gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And your situation, even though it is hard and painful, may just get a little bit smaller. It's really concerning to me as a pastor when I, when I hear of people going through really hard times and I don't see them at church because I'm going, how do you think you're going to heal if you don't get reminded of your Savior? And also what's discouraging is when I talk to friends of those people and go, we're we're such and such. And they go, well, well, you know, they're going through a really, really hard time. And I say, well, have you chatted with them that they actually need to come to church? So they're reminded of you. Oh, no, well, we're just trying to be there for them. You're actually not trying to be there for them unless you actually have that hard conversation. You're not loving them. You're being nice. You're making them feel okay. But you're actually not loving them. Loving them is to say, hey, do you know right now, I know I want to be there for you. But part of the way I I want to be there for you is I want to sit next to you in church. I want you to hold your hand as, as tears are coming down your cheeks. I want to be there so you are reminded of your Savior. Through this bleak situation, through this hard situation, you are reminded of the Savior that gives you hope. When you go through hard times, what are you more aware of? Your terrible situation or your Saviour's great love and hope for you? Let's look at the last meeting, a meeting with Moses. Now, um, we didn't have this uh, passage read out because I thought it was long enough, but did you notice uh, how in verse 13 of chapter 6, there is the family record of Moses and Aaron? There's a family tree. And you go, why, why put that there? In the Gospels, they're generally at the start, but why put that there? See, what you've got to realise is that it finishes with Moses and Aaron being Levites. It shows their family tree and how they're Levites. And a Levite back back in this day, or probably a couple of years after this, the Levites 
were there to go. They were the priests who would go between God and his people. And so what what the writer of, of Exodus is saying is that Moses and Aaron have got the kind of genealogy, they've got the right stuff to be Levites, to be those people who go between God and his people. And yet, what we see here is Moses is full of doubts. Have a look at verse 12 of chapter 6. Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? Then you go over to verse 30 30 again. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Why is that repeated? Did did, did the person who wrote Exodus not put this through Grammarly before they handed it in? Like, what, what is this? No, anytime there's something in the Bible that's repeated, it is there for a reason. It is there to emphasize the inadequacy of Moses. So you and I would realize that that the Israelites weren't saved because Moses was brilliant. The Israelites weren't saved because Moses was a great leader who could speak brilliantly. No, the Israelites were saved because God saved them. And the problem with Moses is this. Moses was looking to himself for confidence, not to the God who saves. He is looking to himself, not to the God who saves. See, when we have a look at the book of Exodus and the rest of of the few few parts of the Bible where it talks about Moses, we see his inadequacies. We see his inadequacies as as a person of faith. We see Moses' inadequacies as a a person who's a leader. Well, we, we see his inadequacies. And that points us to the very fact that we need a greater leader, a greater saviour than Moses. We need Jesus. And yes, you're probably saying, well, Jesus had doubts. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he had doubts, yes, but he wasn't doubting God, which I think Moses is. He wasn't looking towards himself for confidence. He was looking to the cross and saying, hey, if there's any way, could I not go through with this? Because he knew on the cross he was going to take the wrath of God. See, Moses' inadequacies point us to the adequacy of Jesus, who, who in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he went to the cross, was shedding blood out of anxiety and stress. He, and he was doing this because he loves you. He was doing that to save you. Here's what Jonathan Edwards, a great theologian from a couple of hundred years ago, says. Christ's soul was overwhelmed with a deluge of grief, but this was from a deluge of love to sinners in his heart sufficient to overflow the world and overwhelm the highest mountains of its sin. 
Those great drops of blood that fell down to the ground were a manifestation of an ocean of love in Christ's heart. All that anxiety that that Jesus went through in the garden was an overflow of his great love for you. He walked the steps up up to the cross for you. He died on the cross for you. He paid the penalty for you. Do you ever hear the lie that God doesn't love you? You ever heard that lie? Well, the cross says, no, 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 don't listen to that lie. Here is your proof that God does love you. Do you you ever hear the lie that says your sins are too great? They cannot be forgiven. Well, don't listen to the lie because the cross says, actually, your sin has been dealt with. Do you ever hear the lie that says you have to work to earn God's forgiveness and his love? Don't believe that lie because you've got proof in, on the cross, in the cross, that God loves you. He loved you 2,000 years ago before you were born, and he loves you today. The inadequacies of Moses point to the adequacy of Jesus. Moses, on his own, couldn't save anybody, let alone the Israelites, let alone us. But Jesus has saved us from our ultimate enemy, not Pharaoh, not anything of this world, but Satan, sin, and death. Are you trusting in your great Savior today? Because God is the one that even though we wait, He's the God who keeps His promises. He promised to save you and give you a hope and a future, and, he does, and He's done that in Jesus. Let's trust Him and believe His words. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you once again for for your word. Lord, I pray for those of us who are going through a really hard time, who are just waiting on you, and for whatever reason, you're taking your time, not ours. Lord, I pray that we would look to you, our Saviour, more than our situation. Lord, when when we read the Bible and we see the inadequacies of the people that are written on those pages, help us not to doubt or be discouraged, but help us to see their inadequacies and be driven to the adequacy of Jesus, to see what he's done for us. Lord, may we be people who hear your word and see in it the words of life, Help us not to believe those who say it's full of lies, but help us to trust you because you are the God who always keeps your promises and therefore we can trust your word today and every day. Amen.